many of you have a very hard time making decisions? It just doesn't come naturally for you. Now, others of you, how many of you have an easy time making decisions? Give me the information. I can make a decision like that. How many of you like that? It's interesting. It's flipped back and forth between first services. They say one of the best ones to make a decision or one of the ones that do it really, really well are ER, ER triage nurses. you got three people coming through the door, especially in a large city, and one of them has a gunshot wound, one of them has an epileptic seizure, and the other one has a heart attack. Which one do you deal with first? Right now. You can't think about it. You can't wait till all the information comes in. You have to respond. You have to react. You have to minister to that need. For others of us, maybe you're like me, you know you have a decision to make. You've got to do this or do that or buy this or acquire that. You've got to go there. You've got to decide about that particular event. But it doesn't really come easy. For me, sometimes I go to the first store to decide what I want. For the next four weeks, I'm going to seven different stores comparing to what I found, only to end up going back to what? The very first store the first time. How many of you have a hard time trying to sort out all the details and then finally come to some conclusion and you want to commiserate with me? We're going to start a small group in a couple of weeks about that fascinates me how quickly some people can make decisions and how slow some of us are in trying to decide. Now, you know and I know that there are a lot of decisions in life are just everyday, ordinary decisions, and some are pretty significant. Some have enormous implications on our lives. Some are just the normal, everyday experiences of life. For a lot of people in our audience in both services, you are going through or have gone through a graduation ceremony. And you know as you've walked through that, whether it's you personally or your family has walked through that, there are some decisions they have to make. And some of them don't come real easy. Sometimes it is. Look, I do not want to go to school in Minnesota in December. I'm going to Florida. And the decision is made. For others of you, it's they've given me a scholarship and I want to go there. Sometimes it's a sport that you want to play that another school doesn't have. And so you go there. And sometimes you use a lot of things to help you make decisions. And then you've made those decisions and found out, well, it's not what I thought it was or this is exactly what I wanted it to be. When you make a decision for college, there are some enormous implications out of that. Sometimes based on that one decision, this is where I go to school, this city, this state, this degree, this particular field can impact the rest of your life. You're going to stay in that field. You found out that you found your mate in that place. It then becomes the city that you like or the environment that you want to be in. And so that one decision, go to that college, has changed everything else about your life. A couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to participate in graduation ceremony of my niece from Nyack College in Nyack, New York. And the president of the seminary and the, and the college allowed me to stand with her as she received her degree. And as I was sitting there in the front row, it began to rehearse into my mind about the decisions her grandparents made that affected four generations after that. Connie's mom and dad made a decision to go to Nyack College. At Nyack College, they met one another, found each other, fell in love, went out into bivocational ministry for the rest of their lives. Because of that decision, Connie decided to go to Nyack College. Me, for another set of circumstances, went to Nyack College. We fell in love over 41 years ago, decided to go into ministry, and been doing ministry ever since. Out of that relationship, our daughter went to Nyack College, found her mate. They got married. They're now in ministry full-time. And that little girl, the fourth generation in that process, went to Nyack College, took a degree in Bible and psychology, is deciding to serve God for the rest of her life, 
found a guy, they're dating now, who of all things wants to do what? Go into ministry. And I began to think about that. That one decision that couple made has had such huge implications on the rest of her family life. And for a lot of you, you're going to find the same thing. You don't think about it. I am not going to college to get a mate. Or I'm going to college to find somebody who will say yes to go out with me. (laughs) Whatever side of life you're on. But sometimes we don't think about those things. And then all of a sudden you get there and I didn't expect that. I didn't expect, I went there to date. I lived to date. I loved to date. I went there to date because the pool was larger, I thought. And so I did for my entire first year. Had a blast doing that until the second day, first day of freshman orientation on my second year, Connie's first year, and I was hooked. And obviously I quit dating <laughs> other girls. Been dating her for 41 years. Those decisions are huge. And I hope that you recognize the implications of the decisions that you make. This morning I want to use Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 as a foundation to talk to you about what I believe is the most important decision you'll ever make. You're going to make them every day of your life. But what I want to talk to you this morning out of this particular section of Scripture is what I believe is the most important decision you're ever going to make. If you remember the context of the story, Peter finds himself in an upper room waiting for the promise of God through Jesus that power would come upon him and they would change the world forever. And so 120 of them gathered in an upper room and they waited. They waited on God and at that right moment, God showed up in really powerful and profound ways. He showed up so dramatically that a crowd gathered. Thousands gathered. They could see all kinds of things going on. They saw it seemed like tongues of fire on their heads. They heard them speaking in languages that were not familiar. They knew they were all Galileans. They had no idea how they could understand all the different dialects that were there that particular day. We go to Africa on a regular basis, and we find out that they can speak English, French, which is a universal language that most of them use in Africa, and then they'll have two or three different dialects, tribal languages that they know. And I've run into people who know four or five languages. I'm lucky to do one well. That was supposed to be a joke, but (laughs) those of you who have been listening to me for the last 18 and a half years are going, yeah, we got that and figured out. (laughs) They're standing there listening to all this go on and say, how in the world are they speaking in our language and our dialect and they haven't been to any school? We don't even know what they're doing. The sound of a rushing mighty wind blew in and thousands gathered. And Peter stood up, the spokesperson he's always been, but now dramatically changed by the power of God stands up and said, look, let me explain to you what's happening. These aren't drunk. My goodness, it's only 9 in the morning. Let me explain to you what's happening. And he gives one of the most powerful sermons in all the New Testament. I want to read part of it. In Acts 2, verse 14, and moving to 24. Peter stood up with the 11. Now, that's significant. It wasn't just him standing on his own. They were all there. And the rest that gathered around him. He raised his voice, didn't have a microphone. Is this in cutting in and out again? No, it's all right today? Okay. He raised his voice, didn't have a microphone, obviously, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain to you what's just taken place. These people aren't drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. What you just are seeing is what Joel talked about. You hear me every Sunday morning say, open your Bibles too. Peter doing the same thing. Open your Bibles and turn to Joel. What Joel said is now taking place. 
In the last days, God said, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters are going to prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your older men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days and they'll prophesy. I'll show you wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. Sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming and great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man credited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. That phrase alone is an Easter Sunday morning sermon. Notice how he begins, specifically in verse 22, and it's significant if you understand the context of the people he's addressing. He begins by calling Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. Now you've got to think, these people who were there that day, the very last time they heard that term, didn't bring endearment. Matter of fact, it brought frustration and anger, so much so that they yelled as loud as they could, crucify him and hang him on a cross. And when they did, they put up a sign that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So when now Peter addresses the same group of people who may have been here for both events and calls him Jesus of Nazareth, they immediately had their attention. And they're now going to listen to what he has to say because they remember this. And many of them were there. If they weren't there, they certainly heard the story. Who could have not heard the story about this Jesus who was crucified and then, of all things, rose from the dead? And so Peter starts that way saying, look, I know you remember the title. I know you remember the term. I just need you to understand that God had a different opinion of Jesus than you do. You rejected him. God affirmed him. You killed him. God raised him. You despised him, but God exalted him. Peter is preaching to people who believe in God. They consider themselves a religious people, but no real deep relationship with the living God. Only saw him as a God out there somewhere. And Peter is now going to say, look, the one thing you've waited for all of your life was here and you missed him. Don't miss him now. A lot of people that would still find themselves going through similar experiences today. They know all about God, not a person, shouldn't say not a person, but not many people, if you walk through the streets of Butler, when you say, do you believe in God, would say no. They would say, yeah, but no real relationship with God, not because they were in or out of a church or not because he didn't go to church. They just knew there was a God, but no real connection to him, no real connectivity to him. In the late 80s and 90s, the baby boomers started returning to church by the droves. They realized that all the things they had been pursuing to try to fill the vacuum in their soul wasn't working. And they remember the previous generation before them, a lot of our grandparents who had a real solid foundation in church, so they went back. But many of them went back to churches that were only giving feel-good messages from pastors who haven't had a crowd for years who were now welcoming these people in who wanted to do nothing else but make them feel good. Matter of fact, one person said, when you come to our church, we want you to leave with a smile and a handshake. I hope you get both when you come to our church. If you don't, I'll give them to you, and I'll smile the whole time when you have it. But if you only come to church for a smile and a handshake and don't find yourself in the presence of the living God, 
And don't find yourself recognizing that God is not only an answer for life, but the answer for life in His Son, Jesus Christ, that you've missed the most important reason to be here. You can get a smile and a handshake from Eaton Park. A box of them. We want Jesus to be our focus. And there were so many going to church that were just wanting to feel good enough to get by. But not only more than that. And they've been doing it down through the ages. Peter says, look, I want you to know that Jesus the Nazarene was the one you were looking for. Even though you think you know God, you really don't. He was right there. God affirmed him in his son. And you missed it. Please don't miss it now. A lot of people in the world said there and still say that there are many ways to God. And many ways to find God. Crystals and astrology and Scientology and cosmic consciousness and the higher power. Some will say he's in all of us somewhere. Right there are a lot of ways to God. And Peter would say, no, there's not. He'd repeat it again in Acts chapter 4 when he had to say as loud as he could, salvation is found in no one else but Jesus. God declared the same as loud as he could in verse 22 when Peter affirms that and said, look, God absolutely confirmed who Jesus was. He showed it to you in a number of ways by miracles and signs and wonders. God affirmed him again in verse 23 by offering him as the ultimate sacrifice. You've been sacrificing forever. A lamb or a dove so that your sins could be removed. And I have offered you the greatest sacrifice of all, my son. God affirmed him again by raising him to the right hand of the Father. Peter even threw in David to the story so that they could have some connection to their history and background. And then he said, look, I want you to know that David that you so revere, Jesus was a part of that lineage. He was exactly what God said he would be. And David is dead. His tomb is still there. Jesus is risen. He's life and he's life forever. The one you waited for, the Messiah, the Christ, the one you've talked about and thought about and prayed for and waited for was there. Right in front of you. And you missed him. Verse 36 said he was the Christ. God made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He was the one God sent. Don't miss it now, even though you may have missed it before. And Maybe if some of us are honest in the room. Maybe we missed it too. We know about God. We've known a long time about God, but no real deep relationship with God. And Peter said, and I'm saying, don't miss it. It's right in front of you. Now, verse 37, the question is asked, and the, 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 the obvious takes place. And so the, when you're confronted with all of this, you've got to put yourself in their position for a moment These are Jews who had been waiting for the Messiah who had already gone and came and rose from the dead and all of those things that took place and they never had a connection to him. And now Peter is giving them this sermon and you got to wonder how on earth are they going to respond to that message? Could have been angry, could have been frustrated, could have turned and walked away, but look what it says in verse 37. Their hearts were pierced, cut to the deep, genuine conviction. It wasn't, wow, that was a good sermon. Wow, can that guy speak? Now it was deep down in their soul conviction. They realized the thing they had looked for all of their lives had gone in front of them and they missed it. And now is the opportunity to understand it. 
and embrace it. I can't even imagine somebody like that. But if we're really honest, we do every day. People all around the globe who have a knowledge of God or some religious experience of some kind, but no real relationship with him. And Peter, in a powerful, spirit-filled message, points out that the one and only way to God was Jesus. And it touches deep into their soul. And they understand they need to make a change. One of the marks of the moving of the spirit or a spirit-empowered message is that it isn't just good information, but it really touches me deep in my soul. Hebrews 4.12 said God's word does that. It's living, it's alive, it's active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it cuts deep into the human heart. You've got to know that no matter how hard we try to hide ourselves from people, God knows who we are deep down inside, and he knows whether or not we're a child of his. And you can know the same. Romans 8 said the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. I don't have to wonder about that. I don't have to walk through life wondering, am I really a child of God or not? Do I know God when it comes to that point of death and I stand before Almighty God? Will I be invited in? Will I get there? Will I know for sure that if I left this world tonight, I'd see Jesus face to face? Paul said, Peter said, John says, absolutely. You can know that you're a child of God. You can know deep down in your soul. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to wish. You don't have to hope for. You can absolutely know that you're a child of God. And when Peter gets to that point, they respond with deep conviction. They realize and recognize they've got to make a change. They didn't get angry. They didn't get defensive. They said to Peter, what do we do? What now do we do? And Peter said the classic word that have been used down through the ages ever since. His answer to that question was to repent, to turn around, to change your mind, to make a decision, to change your heart. Maybe hard to admit that I've been chasing after the wrong things, but the only way to receive grace and forgiveness and wholeness of life is to repent. Repent means a change of direction, a turning around and going another way, a change of heart. Literally at its base, it means to change your mind. Well, the question that you would most likely think of is to change my mind about what? About my behavior? Yeah. About my priorities and my sin, which are all true. But in this text, Peter is asking them to change their mind about something deeper than behavior. Behavior is important. It reveals a lot about what's going on inside your life. But Peter goes to the core of their lives and says you need to change your mind about Jesus. Obviously, most of them didn't value Christ. Didn't value his teaching or they had already been there with these guys. And Peter said, look, you need to change your mind about your opinion of Jesus and understand who he really is, that he is the answer to life. Peter says that God's opinion of Jesus, even though you ignored him and you sent him away, God's opinion of Jesus is that he is both Lord and Christ in verse 36, which means he's the king. He's not only savior and redeemer, he's the king, and a king has the right to rule. And then I have to decide and change my mind about who's in charge of my life because to be honest with you, that's the most important decision you'll ever have to make. All other decisions come underneath that. Jesus, at the very outset of his ministry in Matthew chapter 5, preached some powerful truth about how he saw life and what he wanted us to see in regards to life. And then he said one of the most classic phrases of all, look, I know you're worried about a lot of things. 
what I wear, where I go, what I do. Look, let me just simplify it for you. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, his righteousness. Everything else then comes underneath that. It's not that these things aren't important. They are. And he's not even saying they're not important. We all wonder about what we eat, what we wear, where we go, what we do, how we live our life. What city we find ourselves in, what church we belong to. And we're going to talk about next Sunday morning, how to decide about a great church. He said, I just want you to know, if you seek first the kingdom of God and put him first, everything else lying underneath that, it'll make your life so much richer and fuller. Because all of those other things that you thought would give you life aren't. And now you're realizing that. And so let me just tell you right up front at the beginning of my ministry, the answer to it all. Seek ye first God. Seek ye first the king. Because to be honest with you, as Peter would say here, it's the most important decision you'll ever make. I've got to change my mind about who decides for me, who runs my life. Is it me or is it Christ? Because if it's me, then I'm the king. And God says he wants to be king. Repent means that I change my mind about who's the king of my life. Who decides who runs my life? Question of behavior and attitudes, my view of sin, my philosophy at life. The, the core of my understanding of morality, which is the right and wrong of life, all beg a question. Who decides those things for me? Who decides for you? Who decides your morality, your behavior, your view of sin? What voices do you listen to to help you decide what's right and what's wrong? Oprah? Dr. Phil, MTV, your Facebook friends, the latest tweet, my kids at school, the people at work. Peter is saying, you've got to listen to the right voices. He finishes by saying, run from this wicked generation. Man, you're going to hear all kinds of voices telling you what you ought to do and where you ought to go. Let me help you now make the right decision the first time, the best way, and then line everything else underneath that. Peter is saying you've got to decide who's the king of your life, who's in charge of your life, who influences the choices you make. My encouragement to you, especially if you just graduated from high school, is to make those choices now because you're going to be confronted every single day of your college and career with such a smorgasbord of choices, it will blow your mind. Even though your parents have been telling you that, we've told you that, and every youth sponsor has ever told you that, it's going to happen like you cannot believe. And the best advice I could ever give you right now before you head into that next stage of your life or next chapter of your life is decide right now who's going to make those decisions for me. Who's going to decide my morality, my sexuality, my attitudes, my love of life, the issues of money, what I do? Who's going to decide those things? You, if so, then you're the king. Peter said, God made Jesus Christ Lord and Christ. He's the king, and God says, you need to let him decide. And the question I've got to answer then is, who's going to rule my life or not? Am I letting him? The core of repentance is changing our mind about who decides. Who's in charge of our lives? We can argue about behavior and things that are right, things that are wrong, and differences of opinion and all of that thing, but it still comes down to this. Who decides those things for you? God says Jesus needs to rule, and you and I need to decide if we're going to let him or not. Where do you get your life from? Your job, your house, your money, your career, the choices you make, the places you go. And I'll tell you why I ask, because what you get your life from is what you'll give your life to. What you give your li- get your life from 
is what you'll get your li- give your life to. So it's really important that you make the right decision. If you're getting your life from anything else but Jesus, you're going to continue to be hungry and thirsty. He talked in John chapter 4 to a woman at the well who had been looking for love in all the wrong places and still came up empty. And Jesus said, you've been drinking from the wrong wells. You, you come to me. You let me take care of your life. You let me run your life. And I'm telling you, you'll be satisfied. Matter of fact, you could die and you get eternal life. It doesn't get any better than this. That you and I have to decide, will we let him run our lives or not? You also notice in verse 38 that Peter said, repent and be baptized. And there are some people, some churches that build a theology around that verse and a number of other contexts saying that the secondary aspect of salvation is not only repent and embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior, but to really be saved, to really understand salvation, you've got to be baptized. And Acts 2, Acts 4, Acts 13, Acts 16 all speak to the fact that Christ is the alone source of salvation. But in this context, the Jews were very familiar with baptisms. It was a part of their culture. That's who he's addressing. And I believe that Peter is saying that once you change your mind about Jesus, you need to identify yourself with him, not according to Levitical cleansing, but be baptized in the name of Jesus. Baptism in the name of... I woke him up, didn't I? Yeah, I thought I did. He had so much energy at the beginning, it was absolutely priceless to watch. Baptism in the name of Jesus declares to the world that you're a follower of Christ and he's the Lord of your life. When we do baptisms here, we do immersion all the way under and all the way back up again. It indicates the fact that you're dead to your old self. You're not living that way again. You've repented. You've turned away. You've turned around. You're following Jesus. You come out of the water, a new creature in Christ. All my sin is past. All my past is gone, and I'm a new believer in Jesus. That's an incredible gift for salvation. But before we put them under, and before we have them that understand the declaration of that, we encourage them to share their story. A couple of Wednesday nights ago, Brent Fellon, our director of our fifth and sixth grade ministry, had 17 young people who went through the tank of baptism. And every single one of them, every single one of them, declared their allegiance to Christ. Fifth and sixth graders declaring their allegiance to Jesus. Not just simply, I know who God is. I go to church. I know who Jesus is. I am saying right now, I'm a follower of Jesus. And that's what Peter is saying by this context. You've got to not only decide who is the Savior and Lord of your life, you've got to declare him as king. Some talk about religion, like politics, being a personal choice. You know, we don't talk much about those things. And I think Peter is saying as loud as he can, oh, yes, we do. There is no such thing as a secret disciple. There is no such thing as keeping my religious beliefs to myself. They are to be declared as loud as they possibly can. And baptism gives the opportunity to allow that to take place. You've got to count the cost and make a public stand and declaration for Jesus. That Christ is the Lord of my life. Peter is saying to religious people, look, religion won't save you. Only Jesus will. And so I'm begging you, he would plead, decide now. God raised him up. You rejected him. You ignored him. You let him go. But he's now right in front of you. Decide. Decide. Because it's the most important decision you'll ever make. God said in the book of Deuteronomy to Israelites that he was so desperately wanting to follow him. 
He said, I set before you two paths. One leads to life, one leads to death. And I beg you, God said, choose life. When Peter finished his sermon, they were pierced and said, what do we do? And Peter said, change. Turn your life over to the one you rejected. Turn your life over to the one you missed. It will change everything because it's the most important decision you'll ever make. I got to believe that every Sunday morning as pastors stand in front of a group of people, I would declare a message like this, that they would have some people in their audience that probably do need to change their mind. Who've been in church for a long time, who've sat in a pew or sat in a service or sat in a place like this, and they've heard the story of Jesus, but they've never really embraced Him as Savior. They knew there was a God. They were pretty religious and methodical about going to church and doing religious activity, but no deep relationship with Him. And so I've got to believe that any pastor that would share a sermon like this would know that in any given audience, there are some people that need to embrace Christ as Savior. I've got to believe there may be one or two here this morning. There wasn't a first service. There are also some people in any given set of circumstances, in any given church, that have invited Christ into their life, but now they're trying to live the Christian life on their own power, and it's not working. Sometimes you want to say, how is that working out for you, running your own life? And sometimes they realize and recognize, I can't continue this charade of trying to pretend to be a follower of Christ when I really know I'm not. I invited him into my life a long time ago, but I'm not living for him, and I'm not letting him control every part of my life. I've got to believe maybe there's one or two in here this morning that need to change their mind about that and say, look, I've got to commit everything to him. I've got to fully, radically declare my allegiance to Jesus and let him take control of every area of my life. Maybe one or two people in here this morning that are trying to do ministry on your own power. Incredibly gifted. You have a lot of savvy people seem to flock to you. They come around you. I had a friend and years ago, I said to him, I just, I love you so much to let you know that you're so unbelievably gifted in ministry. But you're doing it on your own power. And one of these days you're going to flip that switch and the light's not going to come on. And there may be one or two here this morning who are trying to serve the king. Made him Lord. But they're trying to do it on their own. And I just say to you this morning, change your mind. And do it with his power. Let me pray. Father, I, I love your word. It is so powerful and so relevant. Peter preached this sermon 2,000 years ago in a city that most of us will never experience. And yet the power and thunder and confidence and storyline of this has been changing lives forever. People who've said, I missed Jesus the first time he was offered. I don't want to miss him again. I went to a church, I heard the story, I knew about Christ, I knew I should accept Him as Savior, and I, I walked out and didn't do that. Now, here it is again. Don't miss it now. Others who are in so many different capacities of life, either trying to live the Christian life or serve you on their own. And so, Father, by the power of Jesus, would you speak now in a really clear and profound way? Amen.